in spite of Love's notoriety in the LA scene and their brush with Top 40 success with 7 and 7 Is, the band failed to garner much traction on a national level, in part because of Arthur Lee's almost pathological resistance to touring outside of the Los Angeles area. He turned down not only the 1967 Monterey Pop Festival, but also, a few years later, a little um, outdoor show at a farm in Woodstock, New York. A lot of narratives about this period of the band's history tend to place a lot of blame for the band's failure to launch on Arthur Lee's personal idiosyncrasies and his general reputation for being quote-unquote difficult. But in the 2006 documentary Love Story, Johnny Eccles suggests another possible factor. Given that Love was a racially mixed rock band at a time when that was very much not the norm, you can understand why Arthur may have had some hesitation about the reception the band would receive on a nationwide tour, particularly in the American South. Meanwhile, the rest of the band was getting further enmeshed in the darker side of 60s drug culture, spending more and more time holed up at the house they shared, strung out on various things, particularly heroin and LSD. Soon, Snoopy and TJ Contrelli left, making the band a quintet once again. Love was scheduled to return to the studio in June 1967, but Lee had complicated arrangements in mind for the new album, and the band just seemed to be too drug-fogged to carry it off. In an attempt to get the band to pull their proverbial shit together, producer Bruce Botnick called in a group of top-notch session musicians to work on recording a couple of tracks. This was apparently exactly the wake-up call that was needed. Botnick later recalled the rest of the band being, quote, so shocked, so put out, so hurt, that it caused them to forget about their problems and become a band again. With this motivation, the band returned to the studio in August through early September and managed to finally finish recording the album. A lot has been written about the complicated arrangements on Forever Changes. At the time, Arthur Lee had this kind of remarkable ability to imagine whole songs in his head fully formed, but he sometimes lacked the technical or formal musical skills to fully realize what he heard in his head without some technical help from others. According to Johnny Eccles, Arthur's skills on the guitar and the piano were somewhat limited at the time, so he would come in with a melody that he would sing or play a few chords, and then rely on back and forth with the rest of the band to fill things out. From the start, Lee also had string and horn parts in mind for Forever Changes, and he ended up spending about three weeks with David Angel, a classically trained composer, to work out and record the orchestral parts, which were recorded by the end of September. In addition to Lee's compositions, two Brian McLean tracks managed to make their way onto the album this time, the flamenco-tinged Alone Again Or and the more contemplative Old Man. In spite of Alone Again being given the honor of opening the album, and to this day it's probably one of Love's best-known songs, Brian McLean was apparently pretty unhappy that in the final mix, Arthur Lee's voice was mixed more prominently than his own, in spite of it being his own song. I think the interplay of their voices actually works really well on the final version of the track, but it does kind of tell you something about the dynamics of the band at the time. Beneath the beauty of the arrangements on this album, and they are beautiful, the lyrical themes are getting darker, and you can hear Lee's growing disillusionment with the flower power movement. The opening words of The Red Telephone sum up the whole kind of light-dark juxtaposition, which to me is the heart and soul of Forever Changes, remarkably succinctly. 
Lee starts the song by singing, sitting on the hillside, watching all the people die. I'll feel much better on the other side. There's something about this image of Arthur Lee surrounded by summer of love glory, but preoccupied with thoughts of something much darker. For me, it's a perfect pairing between the lyrics and the uneasy beauty of the music. The slightly spooky section near the end where you hear Arthur intoning, we're all normal here and we want our freedom. It still gives me chills every time that I listen to it. With the reputation that Forever Changes has built up over the intervening decades, it can be easy to forget that the record was a bit of a commercial flop in the US, peaking at only number 154 on the Billboard charts, worse than either the debut or DeCapo. Although, it did do much better in Great Britain, where it went all the way to number 24 on the UK album charts. But success in the US seemed to be elusive, at least beyond Love's Southern California home turf. In this context, and given the increasingly fraught relationship with Lee, I think you can forgive Brian McLean a little for getting itchy and leaving the band in 1968, and the fact that he had a solo deal with Elektra in the works probably had something to do with it as well. Meanwhile, Lee dismissed the main remaining members of the band, who had been getting more and more dependent on drugs. Eccles and Forsey, in particular, had become pretty heavy heroin users at this point. The original Love lineup was officially no more, leaving Arthur Lee the last man standing. Lee returned to the studio in 1969 with a new Love lineup, featuring Jay Donilon on lead guitar, Frank Fayad on bass, and George Saranovich on drums. The new band turned in a more straightforwardly blues rock direction, leaving much of the Baroque intricacy of Forever Changes behind. Why such an abrupt change of styles? Well, for one thing, Arthur was musically adventurous, and as we've already seen, he kind of liked to try on different styles and different voices. But he may have had practical motivations too. The complicated arrangements and orchestral parts of Forever Changes were going to be really difficult to pull off live, and that was a major concern, particularly since gigs were a big part of how Love made their money. And another factor, certainly, is just the fact that Arthur's new bandmates weren't that into Forever Changes. The heavier blues rock style was more their wheelhouse. But it does seem like it was not just the band, as has sometimes been reported, but also Arthur Lee himself, who was looking for a change. Jay Donilon, who played guitar in the new incarnation of Love, claims that he showed up for his audition with an acoustic guitar, with forever changes and some of the kind of more folk rock that came before it in mind. But Arthur Lee stopped him, saying, No, we're not into that shit anymore before launching into the much heavier August, which would become the lead track on the new album. Needless to say, Donilon went back and got his electric guitar. In spite of the breakup of the original band, Lee, now the sole songwriter, doesn't seem to have been short on inspiration. The new band ended up recording a whole three LPs worth of material. To fulfill the remainder of Lee's contract, Electra was given the first choice of tracks, which were released as For Sale in September 1969. For there is spelled like the number, and Sale is spelled like the ship part. Note the coy double entendre. And the rest of the material would be released by Blue Thumb Records a few months later, as the album out here. But more about that in a minute. 
Personally, I think that For Sale, or For Sale, depending on how you choose to interpret it, is an underrated album. No, it's not on the same level as Forever Changes, but I think it's still a really consistently enjoyable album, and I think it would have had a much better reputation if it simply didn't have the misfortune to follow immediately after one of the most loved albums of the 1960s. Or maybe if Arthur Lee had chosen to release it under his own name, rather than branding it as a love record, and hence saddling it with a lot of baggage and expectations in that way. Even with the transition to a more blues rock sound, Lee's distinctive songwriting is still on display, particularly on standouts like August, I'm With You, and Nothing. And the album closes with Always See Your Face, which, if you ask me, more than justifies the existence of the album. It's a perfect and kind of poignant little pop snow globe of a song, with those lovely interlocking piano and horn parts. <laughs> 